0: On his very first day in office, U.S. President Joe Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, a project whose history is so long that I won't go into all the details except to say one thing. This pipeline could have carried a lot of oil from Alberta into the U.S. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I look at the tangled economics, politics, and future of the Canadian oil market. The U.S. midterm elections are just five months away. And there's this idea in politics that nobody knows how much voters care about inflation, but people think they definitely care about the price of gasoline. And so in Canada, which sends 99% of its oil exports to the U.S., there's lots of speculation that Biden will try to increase the supply of oil to help lower gas prices. Some people have already noted that his administration quietly loosened some sanctions on Venezuela a huge oil-producing country, historically. Right now, oil companies are raking in profit on high oil prices, but what does the future hold? I have a huge lineup of guests to unpack where things stand. As always, interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. My Financial Post colleague Larissa Harrapin recently caught up with Alex Porbe, chief executive of Cenevis Energy, one of Canada's largest energy producers. Harrapin interviewed Porbe in the hallway at the Global Energy Show in Calgary earlier this month.
1: I was absolutely flabbergasted the other day uh, when I heard that the U.S. is thinking about removing the sanctions on Venezuela in an effort to allow Venezuela to pump more oil. Um, we are the U.S.'s closest neighbor. We share the world's largest, uh, longest undefended border. Uh, we have been allies uh, f- throughout most of our existence. Um, and and I, it, it was just astonishing to me uh, that they would seek to go to Venezuela before they went to uh, to Canada and by the way uh, Venezuelan oil is also heavy oil uh, with with the carbon challenges that that Canada has but with no plan whatsoever to decarbonize their barrel and uh, funding one of the world's worst dictatorships so you know I, I I hope to see over a period of time you know significant you know Canada the the benefits that Canada brings uh, the world needs oil is going to need oil for decades we think that Canadian oil oil uh, knocks uh, just about every other source of oil out of the park in terms of our ESG, our ethical, uh, the ba- basis which we produce oil. So hopefully we, we uh, we're, were able to be successful with that, that uh, story.
0: There's a lot to unpack in what Porbe just said. Questions I had are, could Canada send more oil to the U.S. without the Keystone Pipeline? And is Canadian oil as clean as he makes it sound? And could Venezuelan oil make much of a difference? It's worth pointing out that so far, news reports say the Biden administration loosened some sanctions to allow Venezuela to export more oil, perhaps to Italy, not necessarily the U.S. But Kevin Byrne, vice president of commodity insights at the data firm S&P Global Markets, told me getting more oil into any market right now could help lower gas prices because it's all one global market.
2: I think when you think about what's going on in Venezuela, I think of the world as a bathtub when you think of the world oil market. And right now, the volume coming out of the bottom is faster than what we're putting into it. And Europe's about to cut off 90% of its flows into their country from Russia, which some of it's going to get shifted flows and find its way elsewhere into India and China and whatnot. But some of it may struggle to do that. So we're about to see a, a hit in Russian exports. And the world market continues to drain faster than putting into it. So I think if you're thinking about protecting consumers and pump prices and all those things, You need to increase the level of the bathtub. It doesn't necessarily need to come to the United States. I just need to increase the the flow going into the tub.
0: So just a little history here. Venezuela has been under U.S. sanctions for more than a decade. And in 2019, things got interesting when its then-president, Nicolas Maduro, lost an election bid but refused to concede and never left office. At the time, Donald Trump was president of the United States, and he imposed new sanctions on Venezuela including some sanctions related to its oil exports. Just to repeat that, former U.S. President Trump imposed sanctions on Venezuela after that country's president refused to concede an election he lost. And now the Biden administration has loosened some of the sanctions on Venezuela. This may have been a diplomatic move. It may have been a Hail Mary because Venezuela has sometimes been described as a failed state that has faced food shortages and its oil sector has fallen into disrepairs by most accounts. But in any case, this underscores the unpredictability of the politics around oil.
3: The situation with Venezuela is a little puzzling.
0: That's Ben Cahill, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C.
3: Obviously, Venezuela used to export a lot of heavy oil and semi-refined oil, which was useful for the Gulf Coast refining system. It came from a nearby source, so shipping costs were pretty low. So there was a pretty deep linkage between the Venezuelan oil system and the U.S. refinery complex. Uh, and obviously that was disrupted by sanctions. I mean, Venezuela was in decline for many years because of mismanagement, brain drain, and you know, frankly incompetence in, in governing the oil sector. And then the sanctions obviously you know, cut off that supply. So is there an economic rationale for trying to get Venezuelan crude flowing into the U.S. system again? Yes, you know, Russian supplies displaced Venezuelan heavy. Once the sanctions knocked it out of the system, now that we don't have Russian heavy and semi-refined oil, there is a need. In theory, Venezuela could fit that, that need. I think there are obviously big questions about how much Venezuelan output can grow because the sanctions and mismanagement have taken such a toll on the industry over the years. I don't see the prospects as all that bright for Venezuela making a material impact on you know, Gulf Coast refinery operations, and especially on gasoline prices and overall market balances in the U.S. And I think that behind this, there was also a political element. You know, As I understand it, those talks that took place back in March were predicated on the idea of some sanctions relief for Venezuela in return for concessions to the political opposition you know, guarantees of more political fairness in future elections, etc.
0: As to the question of whether Canada, specifically Alberta, could supply more oil to the U.S., within the current context of elections approaching in a matter of months, Cahill and others said no, not really. Canada exported 4.3 million barrels a day in 2021, 51% of the U.S.'s oil imports.
3: Well, I know that <clears throat> Jason Kenney has talked about the potential to squeeze a little bit more production through the existing pipeline system. And of course, there's always the option of sending more crude by rail. I believe he said that maybe 200 to 300,000 barrels a day of additional uh, pipeline supplies could flow through the existing system, but it's not going to be a huge increment. I mean, the big increment could come through building a new export pipeline, which would really you know, create the demand pool for a lot of um, expansions. And I just can't see that happening under this administration. I also think that in the future, planning a multi-year pipeline project will be seen as kind of risky, I mean, given all the, the saga that we saw with Keystone XL and how long it took to to play out across multiple administrations.
0: Basically, unless you build a pipeline and then build new oil projects to feed that pipeline, his opinion is no, Canada can't supply a lot more oil. Now, Porbe, the Cenovus CEO, has called the cancellation of Keystone XL, quote, a tragedy. And he made the point earlier that on ESG, which stands for Environment, Social, and Governance, Canada scores at the top, and the industry has a plan to decarbonize its production. They estimated would cost tens of billions of dollars. And they're asking for significant government help. At one point, they said the government would need to shoulder two-thirds of the cost. While social and governance may be fuzzy metrics, environmental impacts are a matter of science, and it's well known that not all oil is the same. Oil out of Western Canada, like Venezuela, as Porbe said, is heavy, and it ranks pretty low from an emissions standpoint. This is significant for a number of reasons. I'll get into it in just a minute. But here's someone explaining how those oils rank.
4: Especially if, if you're comparing it to, you know, on the hour acid gases that have a lot of CO2 in them, and then they just vent the CO2 or having really leaky pipelines. I mean, they're basically, the permafrost is melting and the pipelines aren't even moving gas. They're leaking gas. <laughs> like, it's crazy. It's crazy what's going on. So you can find worse. I don't want to say like they're the worst resources on earth, but they're they're disadvantaged. I mean, along with Venezuela and a handful of others.
0: That was Debbie Gordon, a senior principal at RMI, a nonpartisan nonprofit based in the U.S. that's focused on the energy transition. Gordon, who once worked at Chevron and has a background in chemical engineering, has spent more than a decade studying the different emissions profiles of oil from 50 countries around the world, including work on a study that was published in 2018 in the trade journal Science. It found that at one end of the spectrum, you had oil from Denmark, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain. These were the first, second, and third cleanest oils. And at the other end of the scale, you have Venezuela, which is second to last, and Canada, which was fourth from last. Both countries released more than three times as much CO2 equivalent on average than top-breaking countries. And Gordon has fresh data on this that she's about to release on this topic. She explained why both Western Canada and Venezuela, which both produce heavy oil, release so much CO2 in the process of producing it.
4: It takes a lot of heat and steam to get this solid stuff out of the ground. And the way that all over the world, this isn't just Canada, but the cheapest way to do this, if you're an oil company, is you basically kind of get cheap fuel oil and you generate the steam on the back of fossil fuels. So you're not just producing oil, you're using oil products to produce the oil, a lot of oil products. And it's a it's a non-virtuous cycle because you're generating a lot of emissions to get the oil out of the ground, but economically, you're making a profit. So the environment is the worst for it. You could use renewables to generate that heat and steam to get that oil out of the ground.
0: That may help you understand why the process of extracting and producing oil accounted for 26% of Canada's emissions in 2019. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. And Gordon and others have said that the world's largest insurance companies, known as reinsurance, are increasingly looking at the emissions intensity of oil because they see how climate change is creating severe weather events, wildfires, droughts, heat waves, and aside from the terrible toll on human life that these events exact, they also cost a lot of money, which insurance companies end up paying.
4: I think what's going to happen is that the reinsurance companies are going to start to do, not do business with these oil companies, especially refiners. The largest refinery in India, this is the single largest refinery in the world, has eight reinsurance companies. It has eight parties. It's so big. These companies, like the Reese, they don't want to do business with certain parties. And if you don't get insurance, you can't do business.
0: So you're starting to see those insurance companies change their policies about fossil fuels?
4: Yep. Starting to ask these questions. What's your climate footprint? How climate intensive are you? And maybe even differentiate their rates, how much they charge, their premium. Like, I'll do business with you, but you're going to pay 10 times them because your emissions are 10 times theirs.
0: So fossil fuel prices will need to be high in order to support these businesses.
4: And it will create a lot more competition in the market. So the first thing you'll see, this won't if it's if the nice thing about a carbon tax done right or a, you know, insurance premium that's based on an emissions intensity, not just a flat like same dollar for everyone, is that it starts to differentiate the parties in the market. So the dirtiest producers become disadvantaged. There's still a global price for oil. But if you're paying $35 a barrel for your insurance fee and I'm paying $4 a barrel for my premium, I stay in the market and you go away.
0: So Gordon thinks oil companies in Canada should pivot now to producing hydrogen or some type of less carbon-intensive fuel. But this is where it gets interesting because oil prices are sky high right now.
2: Oh, Last year was probably the single most profitable year in the history of the oil sands. This year is likely going to top last year.
0: That's Kevin Byrne again, Vice President of Commodity Insights at S&P Global Markets, and he's based in Calgary. He told me that during the last, say, 15 years, North American oil and gas production grew at an astonishing rate. But the companies never made much money because all their profits went back into new oil production. In Canada, many companies took on debt, built these giant oil sands projects, but that era is over because suddenly, recently, investors said, enough. We want money back. Use your profits to buy back your shares. That'll drive up your share price or give us dividends. But we want to see returns on our investment, not growth. So this is a shift, though, for the entire oil industry, because in the past, they had always plowed excess profits into new future production.
2: It was even more than that, Gabe. It was really in the preceding decade, they outspent their cash flow. Right, that that's what led to the 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 investors becoming soured by the proposition. Right, I see. they outspent you know, Wall Street to some degree. You can think of it as subsidizing upstream development in North America for the last decade because the the industry outspent cash flow, and they grew at a rate that absorbed every incremental barrel of demand growth globally, which kept the prices very low. It was an unsustainable model.
0: And here's the big picture. Amazon, Uber, other tech companies, many people know that they charged artificially low prices and lost money for years as part of their business plan to establish footholds in their industries. Something similar happened with oil during the past decade. In all these cases, those businesses losing money helped keep inflation down, but now that era is over and investors want returns, and this has a lot of consequences for the economy. Oil prices may keep rising because they aren't investing in new production, or at least not in significant new production. Byrne said there's a couple more years of material growth for oil sands companies, and then by mid-decade, there's a steep drop. Already, growth is slowing. And so Biden and other politicians are gonna face a tightrope in the years ahead. To keep inflation down, especially on gas prices, they need to raise oil supply in the short-term. But in the long-term, they need to cut oil production in order to limit climate change.
5: Um, my general opinion is as we are trying to deal with the climate crisis and as we working towards a lower carbon energy system, that we're not going to sort of gently slide down the cost curve of oil production, gas production, etc. That um, it's going to be a bumpy ride on the way.
0: That's Samantha Gross, a fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C.
5: It, it's really hard for producers to make investment decisions in this environment really what policies are you going to come in. The U.S. policies all over the place, and we can't even get get consistent policy. And so, it's just a difficult event for for producers to make decisions. So it's not just Biden policy. It's this market is as is, is volatile and bumpy as it is because when prices go up, people go, oh my God, we need more oil. And they go out and do a bunch of exploration and they bring a bunch online and prices greater. <laughs> and the oil market has run for decades. And so it's always a risk. Um, I, I think in some ways, the Republicans and the public are overestimating Biden's power over US oil and gas production too. You talk about, the moves that he made at the beginning of his administration that he's getting abuse for now, particularly a moratorium on oil and gas um, leasing on federal land, but a relatively small percentage of U.S. oil and gas production happens on federal land. Um, that was not a giant step back for the industry. Um, I think more of an issue is um, shareholders and bankers have been pulling back a little on financing because. In years past, what they did is they rolled their profits back into more production. But now they're like, we'd sure like some profits now. <laughs> so they're encouraging capital discipline for them not to just drill willy-nilly. And stuff. Um, but you know, now, that, now that that's making people mad as, as, as gasoline and oil prices are so high. So there's a lot of factors playing into this.
0: So Gross thinks it's going to be a bumpy ride transitioning off of oil. For now, oil companies are clearly looking for the infrastructure, like pipelines, that will allow them to grow oil production. But there's the question of what happens in Alberta around mid-decade when growth is running down. Will the companies eventually pivot to producing some greener energy? Senevis said Porbe wasn't available to give an interview for this podcast or for an article that accompanies this. But the company sent a statement along which said in part, quote, Canada has unparalleled potential to meet the world's growing demand for sustainably produced oil which can displace oil from bad actors like Russia, Venezuela, or other jurisdictions less focused on environmental performance, we believe the U.S. should be looking to Canada first to help ensure affordable, reliable supplies of oil. End quote. One thing my guests emphasize to me is that most Canadians can shoulder higher energy prices and that climate change won't have a huge impact on most Canadians' lives. But that's not necessarily true elsewhere in the world where higher energy prices and the impacts of climate change are going to create food shortages and exacerbate the weather in a way that will cause severe hardships. I had one other guest, Greg Keolian, who also worked on the 2018 study in science. He's a professor of engineering at the University of Michigan. He explained a lot of technical stuff to me about oil and gas emissions, but what caught my attention was that he doesn't think the world is going to meet some of the intermediate targets we've set for emission reductions.
2: I think the goals, you know, the pledges that have been made are aggressive, but I we need to hit these targets, otherwise the uh, the consequences are, are gonna be even more severe with regard to, you know, climate impact. We have a relatively short window to really bring down our emissions and I would say that we're not on track. You know, there are pledges and commitments. I think there's still opportunities to meet these, but we need to really we, we need to take
0: more aggressive action to hit those targets. It's not going to be easy, you know, in, in terms of this transition. What what happens if we don't meet, say, our 2030 target?
2: So we don't hit these targets. We're going to see more warming and we're going to see more consequences of that warming in terms of temperatures, more drought, more wildfires, more sea level rise, impacts on, on agriculture, on agriculture. Heat stress, in, in
3: terms of impacts on on health, and the thing to also
2: recognize is the impacts are going to be felt disproportionately by the poor, where they don't have the resources to you know adapt. You know, in countries low lying, you know, island nations are going to be obviously impacted by sea level rise, and uh, so. That, you know, the effects are going to be disproportional, but they're going to, it's going to be, yeah, these consequences are really a major threat to humanity and they will be felt worldwide. I think there's a recognition that we need to take action by majority of the the public, but um, I don't think it's fully appreciated in terms of how quickly we need to bring down these emissions and how severe the consequences are going to be. I mean, we're and we're starting to see them with, with uh, wildfires and droughts, you know, increased storm events. But it's going to get a lot worse if we don't you know, take more significant action.
0: The challenge of climate change is immense, he said. And most people don't realize we're not necessarily on track to hit our climate targets, but the time is running out and the stakes are high. So that's basically the message to end this episode that the politics around climate change are gonna control what happens to oil production and what happens to alternative energy sources. And they're only gonna grow more challenging in the years ahead. Thanks for listening to Down to Business and thanks to all my guests. Kevin Byrne, Vice President of Commodity Insights at the data firm, S&P Global Markets. Ben Cahill, a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in DC. Debbie Gordon, a Senior Principal at RMI. Samantha Gross, Director of Energy Security and Climate Initiative at the Brookings Institution, and Greg Kaolian, a University of Michigan professor. Thanks, as always, to the fantastic team behind Down to Business, Bryce Hall for music and production, Pam Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for web support. And special thanks to my colleague at the Financial Post, Larissa Harrapin. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. Until then, you can find all your news at financialpost.com.